Welcome to the Equipping You in Grace podcast, hosted by Dave Jenkins. The Equipping You in Grace podcast is a podcast about helping Christians develop a biblical worldview in a conversational tone about issues inside and outside the church. Now, for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. And today we're going to talk about handling conflict. And and this is, I think, one of the most, unfortunately, one of the most neglected topics um, in the church today. I do not think that there are enough books and resources uh, geared to the average Christian in the church um, on this topic. Now, with that said, there, there are excellent ministries uh, doing great work in this area. One of them is Peacemaker Ministries, by uh, headed up by Ken Sandy. I highly recommend that. He has several books out. They have articles, and uh, that they're really, really good. So uh, hopefully today's episode will be helpful. That isn't to say what I said earlier. doesn't mean that uh, there are no resources out there, so don't hear me say that. There are good resources out there. I'm just saying there needs to be more resources to help us as God's people um, learn to handle conflict. So uh, the New Testament doesn't hide the the fact that every church in the apostolic age experienced conflict. The New Testament writers address these matters. They provide invaluable instruction on how believers are, are to think, to act, to treat one another when conflict arises. And by studying the churches in the New Testament— and the instructions given to them regarding conflict, we get biblical. We can get some biblical principles for handling conflict in a constructive, Christ-honoring way. In fact, one of the most important principles when engaging in conflict, give, it's given in Paul's letter to the Galatians. And it's this, when conflict arises, our attitudes and our behaviors reflect our new life in Christ, given by the Holy Spirit who lives within us. You see, you and I are to display the fruits of the Spirit and not the works of the flesh. We are to be spirit-controlled and not flesh-controlled or out of control. Serious discord threatened the life and the unity of the newly planted churches of Galatia, and so Paul warned them in Galatians 5.15, if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not, cons- that you are not consumed by one another. And if these new Christian believers did not stop fighting, no one would survive the carnage. After all, Paul warns of the potential for mutual destruction within the believing community, and he charges readers to walk by the Spirit and not gratify the desires of the flesh or display the works of the flesh. Now, much of the contentious infighting that plagues many churches today, it results from believers acting according to the flesh and not according to the Spirit. In Galatians, Paul focuses on eight social sins of the flesh that ruin and divide churches. Galatians 5.19-21 through 21 says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, em, uh, dissent, divisions, excuse me, and envy. And as you consider these eight works of the flesh, you need to know this, that the Holy Spirit is, ex- is, is opposed to them. Galatians uh, 5.17 says, For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other. 
Now, Paul's catalog of social vices stand as a, an objective check to our behavior. And so the next time you're involved in conflict, you need to stop. You need to think. You need to know that you're yielding to the works of the flesh, the desires of the flesh, if any of the above sinful vices are displayed in your behavior or in your attitudes. The one thing Christian believers are not to do when engaged in conflict is to revert back to our old pre-conversion flesh-driven ways of behavior. And now it's important to talk about what it means to display the fruits of the Spirit. And when facing conflict, instead of biting and even devouring one another and displaying the destructive social sins of the flesh, you and I, we are to walk by the Spirit, we're to be led by the Spirit, we're to live by the Spirit, we're to sow to the Spirit. We see this in Galatians 5.16, 5.18, 5.25, and 6.8. But nothing but the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit is sufficient to enable Christians to resist the desires of the flesh and to live Christ-like lives. The Holy Spirit, you see, seeks to form Christ-like character qualities in the life of every individual Christian and every local church body. These qualities promote the right attitudes. They promote godly conduct and healthy relationships. The very qualities that the strife-torn congregation in Galatia desperately needed. Paul's nine descriptions of the fruit of the Spirit form a composite picture of Christ-like character and conduct. Galatians 5, 22 through 23 say this, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And we can know that we're walking by the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, when we see these fruits of the Spirit displayed in our daily conduct and our inner attitudes. And so the fruit of the Spirit provides an objective test to guide our attitudes and our behaviors when dealing with conflict. And we need to ask ourselves in the midst of conflict, am I displaying a Christ-like character in the life of the Spirit when I deal with disagreement or someone who opposes me? Hopefully we can answer yes to that uh, question. And when caught in any form of conflict, one fruit of the Spirit that's especially needed to navigate these situations, Paul tells us in Galatians 5, 22 through 23, is self-control. Lack of self-control is a major problem during conflict. It, it, conflict in, in relationships, conflict in marriages, conflict in friendship. But you see, the Holy Spirit provides power over fleshly excesses generated by sinful passions of anger, jealousy, hatred, and even the spirit of revenge. Christians can control their emotions and thinking by the power of the Spirit are best able to handle a conflict constructively and even bring it to a just resolution. These are the Christians who don't bite and devour their brothers and sisters in Christ. They, they don't even repeat the same thing that, that the situation over and over and over again. Instead, they take those thoughts captive into the obedience of Christ, and, and they don't let it fester and grow. They take it captive. They put that sin to death. They don't meditate on uh, the evil caused to them. That doesn't mean that they, they don't ignore it, uh, but, but we don't think in fleshly ways. We are to our minds, Paul says in Romans 12, 1 through 2, are to be renewed, uh, and they are renewed by the Word of God, and the Holy Spirit takes the Word and helps renew us in, in the Word to change our thought patterns so they align with 
what the scripture teaches. In contrast, when people act according to the flesh, they're out of control emotionally. They do not display the fruit of the Spirit and have the potential to do terrible damage to other people into the name of Christ. Conflict presents one of the toughest challenges to walking by the Spirit. If only we would recognize that every conflict is a test as to whether or not we will display Christ-like character and the reality of the gospel in our lives. We need to ask the question, Will we as Christians display the beautiful fruit of the Holy Spirit or the ugliness of our flesh? And we need to ask another question. Do do the scriptures have anything to say about conflict resolution? Well, the answer is a thousand times yes. Scripture is packed full of illustrations of conflict and contains numerous principles on how we are to conduct ourselves when we are at odds with a fellow Christian. One of the most common passages Christians refer to is uh, about, about conflict uh, is that passage on church discipline in Matthew 18, 15 through 20. This passage is a step-by-step guide. It shows the way to walk through the process from beginning to end. And before we look at this passage, let's, uh, let's consider a few preliminary principles. First, let's consider it is incumbent upon every believer to seek peace with others. Paul says this in Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceable with all. Now, running or even hiding from conflict is not a righteous option for the Christian. We do not retreat from one another. We move towards one another with the word of God and with the grace of God and because of the indwelling Holy Spirit. If you are in a conflict with another Christian, you are commanded to attempt to resolve the conflict in a godly matter. In fact, in Matthew 5, 23 through 24, we're told in Scripture that we're to resolve conflict before we even attend church. That doesn't mean that we don't go to church. It, it means that we go and we aim to resolve the conflict, to work it out before we go to church. Now, resolving conflict is it, critical to the peace of the church because it maintains the righteous living of its members. And if we were to look up the number of verses that contain the word peace and righteousness, we we would notice there's a clear relationship between the two. Confronting someone with sin takes courage, and it must be done very carefully. Note the caution of Galatians 6, 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Second, some conflict can be resolved by merely overlooking it. First Peter 4, 8 says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Not every offense has to be addressed, so how do you know whether it should be or shouldn't be? Well, if your fellowship with the other is broken and the issue remains a barrier between you two, then you need to lovingly initiate a conversation with the other person and prayerfully and humbly seek peace and reconciliation. Third, get the log out of your own eye. Study what Jesus has to say in Matthew 7, 1-5 before you confront the other person. The natural and even the sinful tendency for all of us is to maximize the sins against us and minimize our own. Seeing our own sin, it requires humility, it requires wisdom, perhaps even the assistance of a, of a trusted friend or even a pastor who will speak truthfully and candidly to us. Fourth, 
Remember the goal of confronting the brother or sister in Christ. It's restoration. It's reconciliation. Let's be reminded of what confronting one another is not. It's not for the purpose of impressing the offender how much you were hurt by his or her sin. It's not to see to to see to it that the other person feels as much pain as you have. It's not to get your story out there or to stir up others against that person. It's for the purpose of getting of, of for them not getting thrown out of the church. And what is the purpose? There's several. We, we need to confront the one who sins against us to provide them with the opportunity to repent and to be freed from their guilt. We confront for the purpose of restoring a relationship so that they can be reconciled to God and to us. We confront to restore peace and righteousness in the church. And so once you've determined that a meeting is necessary, that your heart is right before the Lord, you can follow the steps given by Jesus in Matthew 18, 1 through 20. And let's look at it in the right order. Step one, confront one-on-one. Jesus taught his disciples that the one who has been offended should go privately, privately to the one who committed the offense. Note the counterintuitive nature of this. We typically think, well, he offends me. He should come to me. That's not what Jesus is saying. If you are offended, you should go, especially because the other person may not even know that they have offended you. And when you go, rehearse in your mind the many related verses on the importance of telling the truth, the ninth commandment, speaking the truth in love, Ephesians 4.15, and not to give a place of wrath to vengeance, Romans 12.19. Now, we need to give a word of caution here. There are situations in which it would not be wise for the victim to confront the offender. We might think of a child victimized by an adult, and we could add more. Suffice it to say that wisdom is required. If you're not sure, there's an easy way to know. Go talk to your pastor. Step two, bring another person with you. But what if that person doesn't listen? What if, what if they don't respond or if they you know blame shift or even deny their sin? Well, Jesus anticipated this a possibility, and he instructed his disciples to bring another brother or sister along to lovingly confront the offender uh, with their, about their sin. Whom should you take with you? Well, someone who is a mature, wise brother or sister. It might be best if the person is not your pastor or an elder. And here's why. Because both the pastor and, and the elder may be involved in formal church discipline later. But the pastor or the elder is your only choice. It'd be best if they come and set the expectation in that meeting that they're not coming in their official capacity, but as a brother to work towards reconciliation. The hope here is that the weight of an additional witness will cause the sinning brother or sister to acknowledge their sin, to confess it, to repent of it, so the one offended can forgive and be restored in Christian fellowship. But sadly, it doesn't always work this way. The reality is that people will often double down in their resistance or denial or both, and is at this time that the believer turns to the church for assistance. Third, tell it to the church. In Matthew eighteen seventeen says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. The church is understood to be the elders of the church who are called to shepherd the, the flock of God in first. Peter 5, 1-5, the elders are called to rule the church in Hebrews 13, 7. And part of that rule is encouraging peace among the brothers. 
and sisters. The, the elders are to formally consider the charges against the errant brother or sister, and once again to apply the scriptures wisely and cautiously in an effort to bring them to repentance. Now, depending on what your, how your church is governed, the elders may in some circumstances also instruct the member of the church to take actions in hopes of a final push for repentance. The congregation should pray for that errant person and even offer personal encouragement for re- restoration, knowing that, that helping to recover a wandering sheep is a good work indeed. And if your brother repents, welcome them back into fellowship. If there are material or even financial issues that need to be addressed, the elders should provide counsel on the best way to bring about an equitable conclusion. If there's others involved in the conflict, each should be addressed by the one who sins so that all relationships can be restored. Don't think that, that this can't happen. This can happen. God will often bless his people with a healthy restoration, and it's a joyous time for the church if it happens. If not, step four, treat him like an unbeliever. If in the end the member will not repent, it's the duty of the elders to declare their lack of repentance being evidence of unbelief. It requires the elders to formally declare that the individual is no longer a member of the church. Matthew eighteen seventeen says, Let him be to you a Gentile and a tax collector. This process is called excommunication. It's, it's removing the privileges of the Lord's Supper and the nurture, provision, and protection of the church. What happens next? If, if an individual is truly a believer, God will use his time out of the church to prod them back, prod them back to it. But if not, their excommunication stays in place for perpetuity, unless they repent. Finally, let us remember that this process is hard. It, it's the most loving thing to do, though. Christian confrontation is completely unlike the world that cancels anyone and everyone who violates the current ideology and rarely welcomes them back without a heavy price and a public grovel. And now we can thank the Lord for his perfect plan of reconciliation and restoration for those that have ears to hear what it means and what it is about. And uh, we need to talk about a few other matters as as we conclude. And, and the first of those is this. Conflict gives the gospel an opportunity to shine. If we, if we live our lives for something larger than, than temporary gain or temporary comfort, we can approach conflict as a means of great divine glorification, personal uh, sanctification, and corporate edification. Sin is the cause of every conflict, James 4, 1 through 2 says, and the gospel of Jesus Christ is a solution. And therefore, every time uh, that, that issues fraction and divide people, there is a wonderful opportunity for Christ to be magnified, sinners to be humbled, reconciliation to be uh, made possible by the means of the cross of Christ. In fact, it's for this reason that James can speak of trials positively in James 1, 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James' words remind us that conflict is a means by which God perfects his sinners' saints. We should give thanks to God for conflict because it exposes our idols and it forces us to embrace Christ with greater zeal. Well, the next point that I have for you is this. The ultimate source of conflict is spiritual, not earthly. 
In, in Ephesians 6.12, Paul says this, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul's words here are vital for Christians who are at odds. When Christians lock horns and wrestle with each other, it is the devil who has gotten advantage over them, Ephesians 4.27 tells us. Through personal sin, these, these children of God have been deceived by the devil. They have let personal offenses overshadow the larger reality of their common share in Christ's kingdom. And when strife enters the church, it, it must be remembered that this is the devil's work. Our brothers and sisters in Christ are not our enemies. They are, like us, redeemed sinners suffering the effects of indwelling sin. Conflict gives Christians an opportunity to reassert their commitment to the gospel so that even when disagreements and hurts persist, there is yet even a willingness to erase a record of wrongs for the sake of Christ. As, as Paul suggests elsewhere, we forgive because God in Christ forgave us. That's what a Colossians 3.13 says, tells, tells us. The next, the next point I have for you is this. Conflict is one of God's wise ways of changing you. Now, not all of our conflicts are with Christians. As is often the case, we injure or are injured by people who profess the name of Christ but give no evidence of salvation. In these instances, God is still at work. Jesus, in Matthew 5, provides the best counsel for this. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You see, since God is working to conform us into the image of his Son, the image who perf perfectly reflects the character of God, we must remember that the enemy-laden world is meant to make us like God. Now, difficulty with enemies, whether it be those who oppose us or those who repeatedly and spitefully refuse our love, is meant by God to break us of our self-reliance. And Jesus' command is impossible for the flesh. However, for those who are born again by the Spirit, uh, will love their enemies by faith in God and by the power of God's love in them through Christ. And in this way, suffering saints learn to love their enemies so they might prove to be sons of their Father in heaven. Now, the last point I have for you is this. Beware of holding an unrealistic view of conflict. In truth, not every conflict will be resolved this side of heaven. This reality has many contributing factors. Personal indwelling sin, mental weakness, loss of communication when somebody moves, and so on and so forth. But it doesn't reduce the responsibility we have to be at peace with everyone as much as it is possible with us, Romans 12, 19 tells us. But even in Paul's wording, there is a concession to the fact that not every conflict is perfectly resolved. Paul knew this personally. In Acts 15, 36-41, he separates from Barnabas, his friend, his mentor, his co-labor, because he could not come to terms on the inclusion of John Mark and their next missionary expedition. Ironically, in the midst of gospel ministry, an impasse was reached that neither man could resolve. If this happened with Paul, it can and will happen with you. And it's interesting in, in, in both of these instances how God continued to use both of these men. The rest of Acts records the fruitfulness of Paul's ministry. Meanwhile, Barnabas is never heard from again. And yes, this does not mean that Barnabas squandered his, his last remaining years. Just the opposite, we know that at the end of his ministry, Paul requested John Mark's presence. 2 Timothy 4.11 says, Bring Mark with you, for he is very useful to me in ministry. Apparently in the days that John Mark spent with Barnabas, this 
younger ministry was strengthened and equipped to return to the ministry. This conflict reminds us that God's purpose and our daily struggles are, are far larger than we can even understand. In the immediate, the separation of Paul and Barnabas was a grievous experience. And yet, it increased the number of missionaries on the move, and in time, it provided to, to have a remarkable, no pun intended, pun intended, effect for the gospel. After all, Mark wrote the first gospel uh, as Peter recited it to him. And, and in the end, these situations widen our view to see how God is using the trials, the tribulations, even the conflicts, even the difficult people uh, to make us like Christ and to prepare us for a world free from conflict and strife. Well, I want to thank you for listening or even watching this episode of the Equipping You in Grace podcast. I pray it's been helpful to you uh, to help you learn to navigate conflict in a way that will honor the Lord and glorify Him. We'll, we'll come back to this topic over time. And may God bless you and keep you until next Monday. God bless you. Thank you for listening to the Equipping You in Grace podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, rate us on the app, and share this with your friends and family on social media. If you want to find us on social media, you can find us on Twitter at Servants of Grace, on Instagram at Servants of Grace, or by searching at Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this episode and many others like it on the front page of our website, servantsofgrace.org.